Well, I, uh, first of all, I want to say that this is a 30-something pulpit. And what I mean by that is it's, it's built for a small Bible that 34-year-old eyes can actually read. And uh, it doesn't work when you have the 50-something Bible that you need to, to look in. So we're going to make a little room here. But uh, there's no text in the bulletin. That's my bad. I was traveling and got a little bit behind and um, didn't get it in the deadline. But if you have a, a Bible... And you can turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. We'll be reading um, a famous story about Christ's coming storm. If you're not a follower of Christ, and uh, you're not sure how the Bible's divided up like I wasn't when I was first asked to study it, uh, there are four accounts of the life of Christ called the Gospels, and Mark is the second in the order of the New Testament. And uh, this is one of the most famous passages, uh, uh, one of Christ's most astounding miracles and one of his most dramatic interactions with his disciples. And we're going to learn, I hope, today, about what it means to be safe with Christ. And it doesn't mean what we think that it means. And uh, let's pray, and then we'll read beginning in verse 33 at the end of chapter 4, to the uh, end of the chapter, and the completion of this great story. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I ask in your mercy that you would um, speak to us by your Holy Spirit. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them. Picking up in the end of a passage where Christ has been doing some teaching through parables. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately, to his own disciples, he explained everything. On that day, when the evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. I want to talk um, about the earliest memory I have of being actually afraid. I don't really know how old I was. I was in early grade school, and Alan Hibbett and I were playing spy. And when you're a spy, you have to hide. And we decided to hide in my closet and um, do spy stuff, I guess. Now, we were from the Midwest, and in the Midwest in the summer, when it's hot, it's also humid, and it's not uncommon at all for someone to shut a window or shut a door and then it not be able to open again. So Alan and I went and we did our little spy routine. We talked to the people who were in Russia or whatever we were doing. And then it was time to get out because we were going to do our eat peanut butter sandwich part of the game. And um, we could not get out. We absolutely could not get out. And Alan was a year older than me, so he was Mr. Common Cool. But frankly, I just and I started beating on the door, and I started kicking the door, and I started screaming for my dad, who I knew for a fact was right down the hallway in his room. I knew it, 
Because I just seen him right before we went in there. We were in there for maybe two minutes. I don't know. It was a long time. We were stuck. Seemed like it in my panicking mind. So we beat on the door and beat on the door and screamed from my dad. I was really horribly frightened. For some reason, it just overcame me. And uh, nothing, no help came, no nothing came. Nothing came. Finally, we busted through the door. And even though it was hot, this is actually in a time when we lived in Missouri, didn't have air conditioning. And, uh, and that's how old I am. Yes. And so we had just got electricity. And the, um, and the door flew open, and I ran into my dad, and I said, Dad, we were stuck in the closet. I'll tell you what he said later, but the point is, I expected him to rescue me, and he didn't. And my dad was a wonderful man, but he wasn't a savior. And this ratchets it up, because, because the disciples we're going to see are with the savior. They are with the Son of God. And look where they end up still. They end up still about to die. So I want to see the disciples' confidence. I want to see how the moment they're overwhelmed, they're underwhelmed by Christ. And then I want us to learn the three miracles of this passage, and then I want us to draw some lessons from it. So that we can learn together that Jesus leads us in the storms to teach us to trust him to make himself greater in our lives. So let's take a look first at the disciples' confidence. They have three components to their confidence. And the first confidence that the disciples have is that they have been brought into the inner circle of understanding. That's why I read these words from the, uh, the, the section that just precedes this story when Jesus is teaching them. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them, and they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them, meaning the crowd without parables, but privately to his own disciples, to the apostles, to those who were on the inn, Jesus explained everything. He pulled them aside. He said, so I just told these stories, and I want you to know how they relate to who I am and what I'm doing and who my father is. And uh, this is the private lesson that you get. It's part of what discipleship means. It's to be brought intimately into our understanding of the teachings of the person and the work of Christ and his servants. And so the very first confidence that these disciples have, when they start to um, make the assumption, I think probably like the rest of us, that the closer we get to Jesus, the closer our life is being set for good, the first one is that they've been taught by him. They learn from him. In fact, so fundamental is the idea that Jesus teaches his disciples, and that that's the mark of those who are intimate with him and close to him, that when he's praying his last prayer before he's crucified, he thanks his father in uh, one of the other Gospels, John 17. He thanks his father that his disciples received and, and believed the word that he gave them. That's the mark of what it means to follow Christ if you're exploring it. It means not only relationship, but instruction and teaching to submit ourselves to the teaching of Christ about who he is. In fact, one of the famous passages after the resurrection, Jesus tells his church to go to the ends of the earth. And remember what he tells us to do? Teaching them what? To obey everything I've commanded. So you can start to see that the disciples are in a special relationship with Christ. And in this special relationship with Christ, the leading edge of it is that we understand what he said. We've been taught by him, ultimately by his church, by his word, by the Holy Spirit. We start to know what God is doing in the world. We start to get an understanding of how to relate to him. With that comes a whole set of baggage. It's possible that we can become very arrogant. It's possible that we can become overconfident in the wrong way. 
In fact, Nate and I and some others here have a degree. Actually, get the name of this degree. You have to get it to be a minister in our denomination. It's called Master of Divinity. How awesome is that? <laughs> so Nate and I, and I know, I know Pastor Scobie's here, friend. Um, we've all mastered divinity. I mean, that takes a long time, and, and uh, it's really important, and so you should respect that. <laughs> but of course, you can't master divinity, no matter how much you learn. You can't really tame Christ by understanding his word, who he is. Yet at the very same time, understanding his word, being brought into ex his explanation of who he is and his father is what he wants us, that's central to the confidence that we have. So that's the disciples' first confidence. The second confidence is one of guidance and obedience. After all this teaching, look at verse 34. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And what do they do? But they come, and they follow. So you can start to see the deepening of their intimacy with Christ. The deepness of their intimacy with Christ accelerates when not only does he give them kingdom instruction, but in light and circumstance, he says, we're going to do this now. Come with me. And of course, they obey him. Central to our walk with God is discerning what he wants out of us, where he wants us to be, who he wants us to be with. And he says, come follow me. In fact, Christ says those words throughout the Gospels. Come follow me. He also says that when we follow him, we need to take up our cross. The part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Christ is not only to learn and to understand, but to engage and enact his word and to do his will in our life and circumstances. And when we do this, because of the way our hearts are made, and I think that the disciples are going to experience this very same thing, we're going to look at their their, their prayer to Christ, which is actually not a request, by the way, we're going to see that in a moment, they're starting to assume that the closer they get, the more in they are, the more they've mastered divinity, the more they follow this way, the more they conform to his life, the safer they are. Or maybe the safer they should be. So their second confidence is obedience and guidance, and the third confidence is that... Um, they're with Christ. They're in the presence and in the actual fellowship of Jesus in a unique way. After leaving the crowd, in verse 36, after leaving the crowd, that's so important, after leaving the crowd, after separating themselves from the world, do you hear the whole progression of their discipleship? It's compressed in the, the highly economic uh, narrative of the, of the Gospels. Just very, very few words tell us so much and you can see the whole pattern of discipleship, instruction, obedience, and intimacy. They're with Christ now. They are in the boat with Jesus. They're set for life. They've got what they wanted. They've got everything that they needed. This boat trip's going to be awesome. Or fill in the blank. This marriage is going to be awesome. Or this business is going to be awesome. Or this family is going to be awesome. Or this child is going to be awesome. Or this church is going to be awesome. Because we've got all these things. We're with Jesus. We're doing his will. We understand his way. And he's right here with us. And all these confidences start to tell us a story about what we can expect that Jesus does not sign on to at all. And that's the course of, of Christian life so often. 
our study, <coughs> our obedience, and our intimacy is um, in service of our desire to master Christ and put him to service in our own life, in our own boat, in our own way. But soon, this whole vision of the Christian life, because Jesus loves them, is going to fall apart. And I would say that to you. Maybe your life's going very, very well right now. And maybe it always has. Maybe you're one of those people that I don't really like. You just seem to always be doing well. I love you because Jesus makes me, but I will not have you old. And I will not read your Christmas newsletter. But if that's you, then, then blessings. But, um, but maybe it's not you. Maybe, maybe I just described the last five years um, and how you anticipate that Christ is going to finally deliver you, finally give you traction, finally give you someone to love, finally give you a child, finally give you a job, finally give you your, your passion, your art, whatever it is. And when everything was perfect, when everything was set perfectly in balance, then a storm comes. You know, your spouse no longer is affectionate to you, or your child walks away from Christ, or somebody gets sick, or you lose your job, or you, know, you fill in the blank. This room is filled with all manner of storms and pain in the life stories of everyone here. And as soon as we become overwhelmed by these storms, we start to get underwhelmed by Christ. That's what I want to talk about now. And a great windstorm arose, verse 37. A great windstorm arose. Right out of nowhere, just, just appears and overwhelms them. The waves were breaking into the boat so that it was filling up. Now think about this. These are no rookies. This isn't like Mike and Nate in the boat. Is Nate a sailor? I don't know. But it's not like Mike in a boat. I mean, like, there's a like, two-foot waves. I'm starting to think, like, those boats? These are people that live in the boat. They're overwhelmed. This great squall comes up, and they cannot control their environment. And here they are. Think of the, think of the confliction of their experience of this circumstance. There are a thousand, tens of thousands of bodies of water all over the world with thousands upon thousands of boats in them all around the globe. And the one little group that is in the one little boat when the Son of God is getting overwhelmed. It just doesn't seem right. It seems, it seems in fact, wrong. It seems like evidence that God does not love them. In fact, that's exactly that's exactly where they take it. So they're in this storm, they're overwhelmed. Think about all the apparatus they have. They can, they can think about Romans 8:28, a famous passage, even though it wasn't written yet, but they can think of the same theology, which is all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord or call according to his purpose. Doesn't work, storm's still scary. They can think about being obedient, following Christ, and that it's always safe to follow Christ. It doesn't work. The boat's still scary. They can think about being with Jesus. It doesn't work. Jesus is asleep. <laughs> Which makes no sense. It's actually um, almost impossible. I would say, unless you're Jonah, guy in the Old Testament, that had a whole set of issues that we want to talk about, or Jesus, you don't sleep in the boat. 
So the, this is the way that it works in the Christian life, often. The, the bigger the storm gets, the longer we're unemployed, the more distant our spouse is, the sicker our child becomes, the longer we're single, the bigger the storm, the smaller the Christ. We start to think of ourselves, where to ourselves, where is Jesus? Where is my Savior? Psalm 10, the Psalms are the songs of the Hebrew Scriptures, opens this this way, very first verse. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? That's exactly the question that we ask. When God hides from us and when he's gone away, when he's asleep in the stern, when we understand that he knows everything, that he's given us his son, that he can change our circumstance in a moment, but he won't. He's doing what's impossible, which is sleeping through our storm. How can anyone that loves us sleep through our storm? Now let's ask a few questions before we start talking about the three miracles. What do you think they did first when the storm came? Now I'm making some inferences because we're not actually told what they did first, but we can make some I think pretty solid assumptions about what would a bunch of <coughs> mariners do when a storm comes. They would do all their storm stuff. Is that too tactical for you? <laughs> you would involve um, elaborate knots and all kinds of things that sailors do. I love Google. You can find this stuff. What do they finally decide to do with none of their words? They finally decide <coughs> to go to Christ. So, let's go back to the story I started with. I broke in. I come running down, full of righteous indignation, you know, to my father. I'm like, Dad, we're stuck in the closet yelling for you. Didn't you hear us? That was all he said. <laughs> that was the whole conversation. He never really, never really tracked with him how horrified I was. And uh, I was bruised for years by that. Not really. But um, I was just like, it put it all in perspective really in a way. I was like, okay. I was in my house. It wasn't on fire. And uh, even if dad never noticed, I'm pretty sure mom was coming home. She probably would have noticed that one of us wasn't around. And in a, in a way, Jesus um, doesn't respond the way that we expect him to respond either. So let's look at these miracles. The first miracle is that Jesus is asleep in a storm. Now, Christ being a man and having a true humanity about him, of course, needs rest. But also, his body is subject to the very same realities that we are. When, when we're being tossed about and covered with water, when people are screaming around us, it's very hard to sleep. So Jesus' sleep is obviously supernatural. And in this supernatural reality, it's obviously intended to send us a redemptive message. 
about what it really means to be with Christ. Now, some of you who know the scriptures, think about this with me. Why do you think Christ knew he wasn't going to die in a boat on a lake? Because he knew he was going to die on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And that's really the message of the first miracle. That when you're with Christ, you haven't subdued him, but you've been swept up in to the course of his redemption and into his purpose. And nothing will change and nothing will thwart, nothing will overcome or diminish what God intends to do in his son for you and for me. The reason Christ was asleep is because he knew that was not the way his life was going to end. It wasn't his purpose, it wasn't God's intention. And so he slept. He slept this miraculous sleep of peace. And to be with Christ, to truly be intimate with him, means that you are so eternally attached and bound to him that he will take you with him wherever he goes. And you will never be taken away by any storm. Now, the second miracle in this passage is the one that gets all the press. And that is that the Son of Man, the Son of Man wakes up, and just like this is what I love about Christ, just like, you know, you wake me up from a nap, I'm, I'm just a little grumpy. You know, Jesus wakes up, he's not like, oh, I'm sorry, I, forgive me, I was just, I was exhausted. But before we get to what he does to the disciples, we have to obviously see that the Son of Man tells us something profound. And he doesn't tell us that he will calm our storms whenever we want him to. What he shows us is that he can calm our storms whenever he wants to. And in words, he calms the whole sea. And everything is still. And that's the message. Not that not that when you go to Christ, he always will, but when you go to Christ, he always can. Take away the pain, take away the sorrow, bring the job back, bring the heart of your child back to you, cure your cancer, and all those things. Because he's going to force you to believe in not only that he can do those things, but to believe he's good when he doesn't do those things. Because that leads us to the third miracle. The first is that Christ was asleep in order to teach us that he understood nothing would, nothing would overcome the pathway to our redemption through him. The next is that he come to see so he could show us that he meant, well, as long as he pleases, overwhelm our boats. But that whenever he wants to, he can take that away. Not whenever we want him to, but whenever he wants to. And the third miracle, well, they're just ready for the third miracle now because he's finally got their attention. You know, our, our kids don't do it so much anymore, but there was a season there when they were just a little younger that they had they always had earbuds in, you know, they always listening to something. And we would talk to them. So we would say, you know, we would look at them and go, and then they would realize that we're saying something, and this is what the boys did. My daughter's much too sanctified for this. 
But the boys would go, yeah. And think about that. How many earbuds do you get when you buy those things? <laughs> you get how many? You get two, right? And they would always go, yeah. That just drove me nuts. So we had a two earbud rule. If I wanted to talk to you, you take both of your earbuds out. Because I want you to hear me with both of your ears. So, so that's what Jesus has done. Because they've not really understood. Jesus just took their earbuds out. And now they're wide-eyed, open, they're ready to really learn the lesson that they were supposed to learn by his instruction. That they were supposed to learn by obedience. That they were supposed to learn by their intimacy with Christ. And the lesson was, you should be more afraid of Christ than you are of the storms in your life. That's the lesson. Because the same language is transferred from the sea. It's, it's fascinating. The, the sea is still. The storm is over. The job is back. The marriage is, re, is reunited. The child is re-embracing you. The cancer's gone. The whole storm is gone. But they're still afraid. In fact, the language multiplied that they're more afraid now. They're on the sea, in the boat, the storm is gone, and they're still afraid. And Jesus has accomplished his purpose. He's made himself bigger than our storms. He's made himself bigger than our trials. He's made himself bigger than our questions. And listen to what they say. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? Well, this is the Son of God. This is the person of Christ. This is who we're asking you to follow. If you're not a, a follower of Christ, then I'm pleading with you to follow him, to listen to his instructions, to obey his words, to find intimacy with him. And then to let him teach you that he is greater than anything you've ever feared that's ever challenged you. So let's take some lessons from this. First lesson is that faith ultimately does wake up Christ. It's not even perfect faith. This, there is no request here. Did you notice that? They don't come and say, Jesus, excuse us. Excuse us, um, we're, we're going to die, and it would be really helpful if you kept us from dying. What do they come? They come, they come with accusation, don't they? Don't you even care that we're perishing? But they still come there, finally. That's why I asked, what did they do at first? Well, the storm carries on for a season. It's clear from the text. Before they come there, they're just kind of disgruntled and bitter and is he faking it? I don't know. He looks like he's sleeping to me. They get, you can imagine all these conversations. But finally, faith comes. Faith propels us to God. It might be like Psalm 10. Why, O oh Lord, are you so far off? Why, why, why? But at least you're crying out. And as long as you're crying out to God, your, your heart has at least part of it that's soft to Him. The next thing is that faith fears rightly. Fact of the matter is that I am far too afraid of um, my whole list of fears than I need to be. The, the scariest thing of all is also the lovingest person of all, and that's Christ. And faith, faith fears Christ. 
Fear is not in a in a cowering, uh, unbelieving way, but you know, sort of in a in a you know, like uh, C.S. Lewis sort of asking, you know, well, who said anything about safe? He's not safe. Remember, what is he? He's good, but he's not safe. He's awesome, is what he is. And in that greatness, in the immensity, in the power of Christ, in a vision of who he is, there is instilled in us a humility to accept his providence, no matter what it is. And when we accept his providence, when we realize that he could, and, and in one day he will, Take away all that brings sorrow and anxiety to us, but for his own good reasons, he does not. When we understand that he could, but he does not, and that he's wise to do so, then we will be then we will start to find peace. Then you will find peace in your illness or the fraction of your family, or the loss of your work, or whatever it is. That's where peace comes from. When faith fears rightly. Bigger than your dreams, Christ is your ears, your workmates, your friends. Next lesson, a few more, just bear with me, is that faith trusts the goodness of God, not only his power. And that's what the disciple, that's where it breaks down here. And, and that's where we can all believe, can't we, that, that God can change everything. That's, you know, if there is a God, we're pretty sure he can do what he wants, right? The question is, is he good when he doesn't? And that's what the disciples struggle with. What's up? Do you not even care? And I know many of you, I would say probably all of you, have wondered that question at some point in your life, if you're a follower of Christ. But faith trusts the goodness of God. I mean, that's why I put it to my people. Um, for faith, this was that a Christian is supposed to interpret God's providence, what he does in our lives, with his promises. But unbelief interprets God's promises by his promise, by what he does in We get it back. What God says will be, will be. Trust the goodness of God, not the power of God. Two more things, and I'll tell a brief story of a friend of mine from or down in Seattle. Um, faith sees storms from the stern. What I mean by that is that Christ was sleeping in the stern. Remember what we said about that miraculous sleep? It was because he knew, he knew the path of redemption. He knew the reality of what God was going to do. He knew nothing would interrupt that. He knew that was absolutely certain. He was going to sweep all of his disciples right into Jerusalem, right to the cross, right through the resurrection, and up into heaven with him. He knew that nothing was going to change that. And that's what I mean by seeing your storms to the stern. You need to see that nothing in your life, nothing in your way, nothing that hurts, nothing that makes you afraid, nothing will ever distract God from finishing what he started in you and bringing you to fellowship with him and the Holy Spirit and the Son in glory. Nothing can change that. doesn't mean nothing scary. It doesn't mean nothing hurts. It just means nothing will change it. And so understand that the ultimate story, the great narrative, is of Christ bringing you back with him. He will lose none of those God has given. Nothing will change that. See your storms 
from the stern. And then, finally, I want you to be reminded that Christ calms more hearts than he does storms. And that's really what this passage is about. This passage is about Jesus telling his disciples that they don't believe. It is it's so, I mean, it's so not, it's so not um, therapeutic, this passage. It's like, don't you, what, don't you, after all this, you don't believe? He's irritated with that. You know, faith, another passage tells us, our faith is more precious than gold, and God wants to refine your faith. He wants to calm your heart, not your storm. He wants to give you peace that passes understanding, not peace that works when everyone around you is doing what they're supposed to. Because how often does that happen? <laughs> so Christ wants to work in your heart. He says, really, you don't believe? So that's kind of insulting, but, but work with me for a moment. You're really very afraid about how you're going to pay your mortgage in the fall. That's a real fear. Jesus says, and you still don't believe? That's hard, I know. Or you're sick, and you don't know who's going to take care of your family. But Jesus still says, well, you don't believe me yet? I mean, you fill in the blank. And then ask yourself, is Jesus clueless, or is he kind? Can I trust him? Can he calm my heart? Or do I need him to calm my story? So let me tell you a story about a man named Jeff in a church. Jeff Jesse, um, four years ago, Jeff was uh, going to close his business, and that's kind of a bummer, right? He wasn't closing it because he was going to retire. He was closing it because it wasn't working. And the week he closed his business, he's, he, got a, he got a fever, and he felt sick. He's going to finally close it, I think, on a Thursday, and over the weekend, sir. And then by whatever it was, in a day or two later, he was pretty sick and he ends up in the hospital. So the week that he closes his business, he gets diagnosed with leukemia. Sandy and I went to the hospital when he was, after he'd been admitted when they were checking him out. And I said, I said, Jeff, how are you doing, man? What's going on? We were praying with him. You know, there was a lot of emotions. And, and Jeff just looked right at me and said, I'm just doing great, man. God's going to take care of me. Now, let me tell you something. If you say that to a pastor in a circumstance like that, we are actually trained to not believe you. <laughs> and what we mean by that is, uh, what we mean by that is that we want to make sure that you're dealing with it in reality and not just throwing a Bible verse on top of it. I'm telling you, Jeff, by the way, has five children. Jeff's um, still getting treatment, although it's kind of a remission for the human. Jeff still doesn't have a job. He's got kind of a part-time thing. Jeff is still in a complete state of peace and shalom. So he's never had a dent. And I'm telling you, I try to disprove it. I try to debunk his faith. He's let God calm his heart and not his storm. He's, a, he's, he's remarkable, but not because he's special, because... Maybe the only thing that's special about him is he's let Christ be bigger than his world. And he can be bigger than our world. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask in your kindness that you would teach me these things that I have been teaching others.
that we would find rest and peace in Christ who loves us so dearly and so perfectly. We will have no complaint or accusation about his care in the end of all things. Help us live in the truth of that now. Amen. So we come now to the time of, of responding. And um, I don't know about you, but that is, I was really rich and I'm not sure I was going to find all that. Um, but I think it's timely, and I think it's timely. I was, again, I was just uh, hanging out with Nate the other day, and we just had some really good Indian food, and the sun is setting, and we're drinking some good Belgians, and smoking a pipe, and, um, and Nate was doing his Bilbo Baggins thing, and, and, and it, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis, he smokes 60 cigarettes a day, he can smoke a pipe every once in a while, so... <laughs> And, and it was just beautiful. We were watching the sunset and just talking about God's blessing, just feeling so blessed. And and um, and then Nate, and how he goes from Bill of Baggins, and he says, "Yes, and I think we're going to suffer." And I quickly got this one here. Um, but it was just this idea of yes, you know, I, I feel like our church run the cost of God's blessing. I mean, we see just quality of people coming in, and God is growing us. And and Mike, I think you're teaching us. Um, uh, this is a timely word that, that we need to gird ourselves for suffering. And, and what I hear you saying, Mike, is that that we need to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord. And that our circumstances, um, whether it's cancer or loss of job or um, you know strife in relationship, um, and, and it seems like like God is just sleeping. Um, we have to know that He's not. And he's proved that to us. And so um, we're going to take some time with this kind of ask God to get this message into our heart and to give us the, the strength to, to stay close to him and when we do things up. And then we'll, we'll pray over the offering as well. Father, um, I am truly just caught by um, this reality and, and, and just the fact that we do live in a fallen world and suffering is going to come. Father, you have blessed us. You made this beautiful world. You have promised us salvation, and yet there's going to be heartache. There already has been heartache in our lives. And Father, we don't want to go jaded. We don't want to be bitter. 